Well, good morning, friends. Gitwell Church, whether you are here or online, we say welcome to our worship service, and I'm excited to be with you guys today as we continue in our series of Gospel Friends. Now, our topic today is one that oftentimes we want to avoid, but we're going to all experience at one point or time in our lives, and that is pain. You see that pain enters our life in various forms. We experience pain through broken relationships, friendships, abandonment, oppression, suffering, sickness, death, grief. The list could go on and on. And in our Western culture and in our American life, we do everything in the world to rid our lives of it. We spend thousands of hours of our life and thousands of dollars to get the pain out of our own experience and our own existence. Yet pain and suffering and death and grief, they find us anyway. It's always lurking in the background. And we're all guaranteed at some point in our lives that we're going to experience it. Pain, suffering, grief, and death. And all of these, as we know, are guaranteed because we live in a broken, sinful world. And it's because of Genesis 3. Once Adam and Eve experienced that disobedience with God, the whole world was guaranteed and plunged into this pain and suffering and grief and death. And the question that we have to ask ourselves today as Christians is how do we even deal with it? How do we respond more importantly as Christians? How do we come alongside those in our lives, those that we are entrusted to our care, and how do we help them deal with it? Have you ever felt like you had no clue how to help someone who was hurting? You know, it doesn't matter if the pain is physical or emotional or spiritual. Too often we just kind of freeze, don't we? Not really knowing what to do or how to help our friends in any type of need. Should I give them advice? Try to cheer them up? Give them a hug? Offer to help in some way? I mean, who really knows, right? It's simply hard to know the appropriate way to respond so as not to hurt them or offend them even further. Now, today we're going to look at two different stories, but we're going to start in the book of Job. And I don't know about you, but Job is just not one of those wonderful books I like to read. It's 42 chapters of what I call misery. But, you know, the scripture, the writer of Job, get, paints this picture for us that I think is really important for our topic today. The book of Job, most theologians believe, was written even before Moses wrote the Torah. And we are painted this picture of two stories of the lower story of earth and, and Job and his suffering, but the upper story as well of God and Satan dealing with each other. And as we walk through this, we see that Job is going to experience some of the deepest, darkest emotional and physical pain that one could be dealt 
At his darkest time, though, we find that his friends came to be with him. The initial steps that they took serve as an example for us on how to respond when our friends are hurting. Now, in this book, we see that Job is described as a righteous man before God. It tells us that he was upright, he was blameless, he was one who feared God, he kept away from evil. He was a family man, a man of prayer, often praying for his children to stay out of trouble. But we read that on one occasion, Satan comes to God and is allowed to put Job through this personal trial. You see, Satan comes and tells God that if you took all this away from him, he would not praise you. And God said, try it. So God gave Satan permission to do whatever he wanted to Job except to kill him. Now, in a series of unthinkable events for us, Job lost everything. His livestock and his possessions were stolen or destroyed. His children were killed in an accident, and he experienced a painful skin disease. And yet we find in all of this, Job did not sin by cursing God. But even though Job did not curse God, his pain was very real. It was very deep. It was very emotional. It was very physical pain. How could you not be after going through all that? So enter Job's three friends. We have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Nice names in those times. I mean, what could they possibly do to make Job feel better? So I want us to begin, let's look in Job chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple of verses here where we're introduced to Job's friends. And in uh, chapter 2, 11, here's what it says. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namanite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So what do we see here? Close friends, hearing what had happened, coming together for the purpose of showing sympathy and comfort to their friend Job. They were not too wrapped up in their own business to be disconnected from him in life. I mean, they traveled to meet him. Think about this. They could have stayed and prayed for their friend. They could have stayed at home and prayed for their friend. And there would have been nothing wrong with that. After all, people of faith are called to pray for one another and for those that are hurting. But instead, they decide to go the extra mile and they sacrifice their own personal time for their friend. And I'm sure they left their jobs, their families behind. They spent their own money to travel for, from their homes to be with Job. And the, I love how the writer here says that they made an appointment to come together and mourn. 
In short, they reached out to one another, coordinated their journey. You know, maybe one of them started the process. Hey, did you hear that about Job? And they got some action going. And in this instance, they decided that best course of action is to show up together as a group. Now, the writer tells us that when they saw Job, they did not recognize him. They lifted up their voices and they wept for their friend. Here we see Job's friends seeing the situation for what it was. They deeply grieved for Job and they expressed their emotion in the right way. They didn't show up and saying, hey Job, how you doing? Happy to see you, did they? They came and sat with him. Now ancient Hebrew tradition is important here because it dictated that in order to express grief and sorrow, you were to tear your clothes and put dust and ashes on your head. And Job had done that when he went through and experienced what he did. And as his friends show up, they do the same. Each of them tore his robe. They put dust and ash on their head. They were unified in spirit with their friend and they were not embarrassed. This was not the short hospital visit where they show up and say, hey, how are you doing? And then leave and never to return. You see, we read that Job's friends stayed with him. They sat on the ground with him and were with him for seven days and seven nights. And they showed a willingness to be with him for as long as he needed. But to me, the oddest point of this is that they just sit in silence and don't speak. Can you imagine that? That's not our culture, is it? How often is our first inclination is to say something We want to make the situation better. We want to fix it. We get nervous and feel the dead air with the sound of our voice. And in moments like this, usually the wrong thing often comes out. Job's friends recognized from that moment they arrived on the scene that he wasn't ready to hear anything or communicate in any way. So they expressed their sympathy just for being there through silence. You know, sometimes when we're with someone who's hurting, you don't have to say anything. It's just being there with them is enough. So the friend's initial reaction was very positive, wasn't it? They made the right decision to comfort, but they can't leave well enough alone. They have to open their mouth. And sadly, when the conversation between Job and their friends actually begins in chapter 3, it's all downhill, all the way till we get to end from chapter 3 to basically to chapter 41. And it's conversation after conversation between the friends of Job and Job himself back and forth. And guess what? Friends have an opinion on what Job did wrong to get himself in this situation. Can we imagine And boy, do they get it wrong. I want us to look at a few things that that are said here. We're going to look at the first friend, Eliphaz. And in Job 4, 8, here's what he said. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. I'm going to try to paraphrase some of these in in a more modern way of understanding. Basically, it's like, hey, Job, my experience is, is that if you do evil, you're going to reap what you sow and you must have done something. That's really what he's saying. Go to Job 5, 4. 
His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate and there is no one to deliver them. Hey, Job, whatever you did caused your children to die. Go to 15.2. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Job, you're nothing but old windbag. You give empty talk. Job 22.5. Is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities. Job, this is a result of your sin. Bildad. Let's look at a couple of his, Job 8, 4. If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hands of their transgression. Job, your children sinned is why God took them. Job 8, 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. Job, if you just had integrity, God would not have done this to you. And finally, Zophar, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Job, you dare question God and ask why? He's punishing you far less than you actually deserve. What do we see in this, these conversations? Job's friends completely misread what has happened to him. They thought Job had done something wrong, had sinned, and that God was punishing him for that sin. And as a result, they kept urging Job to repent even though he had nothing to repent of. Over several dozen chapters of these writings, the friends offer Job some really bad counsel. Consequently, they're upsetting him with their wisdom. And that's what stirs Job up then to start questioning God even more. And if it was their words that took Job lower and lower as if he could feel any worse... We learn in chapter 42 in the end that God was not happy with the friends. In fact, in 42.7, uh, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God says to the friends, you got it all wrong. And as the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, the Lord then gave Job twice as much as he had before. I find this fascinating that when we read that ending chapter that God tells the friends to do an animal sacrifice and that Job will pray for them. And when Job prays for them, they will be forgiven. And guess what? Job didn't get restored till he prayed for them. There's a lot of stuff in that. But let's contrast this message of Job with the actions of Jesus. Look with me in the Gospel of John. Let's go to chapter 11. And we're going to set this up because this is the story of, of Lazarus that we all probably know. But we read that, Jesus, that Lazarus is Jesus' friend and he's sick. He'd been sick. He ends up dying and his sisters Mary and Martha were calling for Jesus to come. 
So let's read together. We're going to skip several verses here, but I want to highlight certain parts of this. In John 11, 17 through 21, let's look. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Skip down to John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus then says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And finally, going down to verse 31, this is such a key verse in what we're talking about today. When the Jews were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Listen to this. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how we loved him. Now, if we read on in that story, we know Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And there are many points in this story that we could take in directions that we could go. But here's what I want us to look at today. Jesus came upon hearing the news. And even though he was and is God, and he knew that in a few moments, he's fixing to raise this dead man back to life. It says he was deeply moved and greatly troubled at their weeping, and it was enough that it moved him till he wept. That's astonishing. The humanity of our Savior in that moment, knowing that what he was fixing to do and rectify he was with them in this story, in this mess, in this trouble, in this pain, in this suffering. And if these, in these two stories, there is what we learn here is there's a way to look at two things. There is a loving way to come alongside those who are in pain. And then there's a harmful way. Job's friends started off great, didn't they? But they got tired of sitting there and they wanted to fix things and started giving advice. And advice was wrong that ended up, it could have hurt Job in the process. But then when we see Jesus and we practice the way of Jesus and we see the way we walk with our friends in their pain, in their suffering, in their grief, and even in their death, it changes things. So what do we get from this? For us, application for these two stories. The first thing is we need to, as Christians, gospel friends, we need to be available. See, Job's friends were good at this until they weren't. 
Jesus, though, is always available to us. And in order to help a friend, guys, we have to stay connected with them and know what is going on in their life. Every person in this room is given a circle of influence over a group of people surrounded you, be it family or friends, everybody. Sacrifice of time, energy, maybe even money is sometimes needed when your friends are in time of need. Share the news and get others involved if possible, but be sensitive to how people come along and how many you bring along in helping a hurting person. Now, I talked about this earlier, and I really believe this. What's heartbreaking for us here at Getwell Church on staff is for somebody to, to walk away from church or they say, I've been going through this and nobody did anything. That's heartbreaking. But the size that we are, staff can't do this. That's why it is so important for every person in here to be connected in community with each other in some form of a group, in a life group. We offer those. And if you're not, I urge you to get in this and get connected with people, with other human beings that will walk with you through pain, suffering, grief, and death. Because friends in pain may need you for more than one day, than more than one hospital visit, than more than one call. And I, here's, I didn't say this at 9.30, but I'm going to say it now. You putting it out on Facebook that you're praying for somebody is not what this is talking about. Okay? Number two, empathize with. What is empathy? It is simply the ability to understand and share the feelings of another human being. See, in Galatians, Paul calls on Christians to restore the sinner, in the sinner, a spirit of gentleness. He also cautions us against falling into the temptations too, but he requires one of each of us Christians to bear one another's burdens. God calls on Christians to show empathy, and empathy lies at the heart of Christ's response to sinners. Think about this. Jesus knows your sin before you even do it, and yet he calls you to be his. Empathy is the focus of the book of Galatians. It's the message of the Christian witness. However, empathy is lacking much in modern Christianity because think about it. We want to fix things. We want to say, here's the problem. You may have happened because this or that happened, but true empathy has nothing to do with judgment or punishment. Rather, it intentionally cultivates an awareness of the other person's reality and helps us generate a, and develop an understanding of another perspective from which that person's coming from. It then allows us to walk with them prayerfully and respond in a way that Jesus would respond in their true humanity. Empathy is taking on someone else's burdens and validating their humanity out of love of God for that person. 
See, as followers of Christ, part of the authentic witness of the church should be empathy, extending empathy, not judgment or punitive measures. Empathy restores sinners far more effectively than judgment does. Empathy is what we are called to be in Jesus himself. See, Scripture says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He expressed that empathy for Mary and Martha. That's who we should imitate, not the friends of Job. Don't offer counsel when you don't understand what people are going through. Avoid throwing gasoline on a fire that you don't understand and escalating a friend's pain and their feelings by saying or doing something that you think is, is appropriate. Express emotion that is equal and relevant to their circumstances. Find ways to identify and connect with those in pain that are with empathy. Number three, we should learn to lament with. That's a very interesting word, lament. I didn't really know anything about it until the last couple of years. And thankfully, through a seminary professor teaching it in our class and, and, and having us implement it in the practice of our life, it really, is a, it really is part of who I am now. See, lament allows the people of God to cry out to God on how things should be. It calls to God to say, change what's wrong here. People think we, can't, we don't have that ability, but we do. David exhibited over and over and over in Psalms. Jesus was on the cross dying and he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what he was, what he was reciting? The beginning of Psalm 22. I always wonder if he hadn't been about to die at that moment, would, it, would he have said the rest of the psalm? Because you know he knew it. You see, lament provides us the model for God's invitation for us to cry out to him when things are not going well. Because we don't hide anything from him anyway. But it's through lament that you witness God's grace and sufficiency for your life. It is a practice that you have to practice and learn. But it has so deepened my relationship with Jesus. You see, I wouldn't be able to stand here now and tell you this story a year ago. But I can today. I learned lament over the past couple of years in dealing with the health of my mother. You, you know, the shock of watching someone that you love, their mind disintegrate through Alzheimer's or vascular dementia, and it slowly takes a toll on her fading away, and it takes a toll on the family. Because confusion of the mind mixes up stories and you get the blank stares and you know that the neurons are slowly firing. Her past becomes a mixed mixture of reality. 
and suddenly past members of family are reborn and they become her present reality. It's the death of the brain. And one cold January day in 2020, I made the walk down the corridor to mom's uh, nursing facility here in South Haven. And it, you know, there were days I absolutely dreaded going. But to practice this practice with somebody takes, take, you walk with them. And, you know, that pilgrimage, I always say that I walked daily down and I looked through hall and hall of people that had been just left there, takes a toll on you. I come into mom's room, her door was half open, and I was just suddenly shocked because she's sitting up in her wheelchair and she's holding a baby. It's not a real baby, but a baby doll. She had been that morning with a program that they had where they taught the residents how to change a baby with a diaper and all of that. And if any of you that knew my mother, my mother loved children. She loved babies. And so, of course, she was taken to that baby doll and she wouldn't let it go. And so they said, we're going to let her have that baby doll. Well, my initial thought was, I am not okay with this. God, I have had enough. I have watched her over the last couple of years disintegrate day by day by day. And you take her back to this toddler to where she's now playing with the baby doll. And I lamented, I screamed, I was angry, and I was just not doing well. It was too much for me to bear. Why not go on and take her and end this misery? But... My mother's face told a different story. This baby entered her world and she was suddenly immersed in it. She smiled, she loved, she kissed the baby. She held it up for me to hold and I took the infant and I pretended, rocked it in my arms and I asked her who the baby was and she says, well, I don't know. I can't remember his name. I'm one of three boys, so it was, I knew she was going to be a he. We have a history of nicknames in my family, so I said, Mom, why don't we just, he's the youngest, let's just call him Baby. And she smiled, and she said, okay, and she took the baby back from me. And the months rolled forward, and we found ourselves entering that world of COVID-19 in March of 2020. And I'll never forget, March 8th was the last day. I walked in there, and they said, we're going in lockdown. It was the last day. I hugged mom. And you just say, God, I can't do this anymore. Then the visits become through a window, and they're difficult. But I always ask, Mom, do you know who I am? And she says, of course I do. You're my son. And she'd hold up baby for me to see. Now, oftentimes she would have uh, had dinner and baby had dinner all over his face too. And that was okay. And you know, Labor Day came along and then a phone call that evening. And after dinner, lying in her bed, Mom passed peacefully to her new life. And baby was there cuddled in her arms. And what was so initially upsetting and disturbing to me became my mom's lockdown companion till the end. 
It was her reason for living, and it was grace. Grace through trial. Grace until the end. It was always there. And Jesus provided it. See, here it is, a a deeper understanding of what Jesus says. My grace is sufficient in all circumstances. It's so ironic, isn't it? It took a baby coming in the world to save us. And I look back and God granted such love to my mom through a baby. See, folks, walking with friends and family and people in your circle that you love through their pain and suffering and death and grief is not easy. It never is. It was never meant to be. The fall threw us down this path that we're all going to deal with. But here is my hope. This is really one of my go-to verses now. And it's all the way in Revelation. It's Revelation 21, 3, and 4. And it's the verse that I continually go to when things get hard. And it gives me hope for my future, for our future. I want you to listen to this. John is... John is recording this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We're going to get out of this. We are. Through Jesus. But until that time, I'm going to choose to walk daily with those entrusted to my care, my family, my friends, my circle. I'm going to walk with them in their pain and in their suffering, in their grief, and even in their death. How? I'm going to be available. I'm going to empathize with I'm going to lament with until all things are right again through Jesus. Walking as gospel friends through pain. Now, I know many of you here today, and I see your faces out, and I know you're struggling. I know what you've dealt with in the last two years with family and friends. But here's what the past two years have taught us is that no one's exempt from this. You don't have to and you should not go through this alone, church. Let's don't forget Jesus gives us this model. Here, listen to Paul's words as he reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All praise to God, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles. Why? So that we can comfort others. When they're troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. As he gives to us, we give to others through Jesus. As the praise team comes and leads us in our last song, altars are open. You can give it to him. We're here for you to walk with you, get connected, find your group.
be in community, be available, empathize, and lament. Come and give God your pain. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you now. And we just, some days we're so tired, we're broken, we're dealing with so much, and we just cry out to you, and you tell us, it's okay, I got it. You model for us how we should walk with others and give us the strength to do so. As you have comforted us, help us comfort someone. Help us be the shoulder to cry on. Help us be just a voice. Help us to sit and listen. Help us to walk with until you call all of us to that perfect life that we so long for. That's our hope in you. Jesus, we're so grateful that you gave it for us. We have our way and it's through you. So may you, you help us, strengthen us to just build your kingdom through us according to your will in all things. We ask this in your name, Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.